Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. We're joined today by NCBC board member and great friend of the center, Deborah O'Hara Ruskowski. Our conversation today will touch upon various issues, but it will focus mostly on Deb's work with the Sovereign Order of Malta, and in particular, her efforts to combat human trafficking. Deb, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So we ask this of every new guest, and you are a new guest. Hopefully, this won't be your first time as a guest on our podcast. But for every new guest, I always ask, uh, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself, specifically your education, your work experience, leading up to your work with the Order of Malta? Thanks, Joe, for having me. Yeah, um, my background is, uh, let me give that a little bit of thought here. It's been, I'm a critical care nurse, 35 years. Um, I had roles in the ICU, the emergency room. Um, I worked in mostly the Boston area. And then I had an opportunity to go and get my MBA. And I did that. And that brought me into marketing in healthcare, uh, like HP and Marquette Electronics, um, where I met my husband, which was great. And uh, later on, during that time, I uh, got involved also volunteering in the church. And that led me um, to be the Respect Life Education Coordinator for the Archdiocese of Boston, which led me to get my master's in theology. And um, all of that, uh, my Catholic faith has always been really a strong part of me. And so when I was asked to go on a journey of um, a pilgrimage for the Order of Malta to be a nurse in their Lord's Pilgrimage, it's annual every year, um, I jumped at the chance, and I learned more about the Order of Malta. Um, I was asked to join it, but I really take the membership very seriously. And it's a commitment and a promise with God. And the three charisms is to serve the sick and the poor and defend your faith. And I started with that serving the sick in the Lord's pilgrimage. And that's what led me to be who I am with the Order of Malta now. Oh. Excellent. Uh, we'll have to talk some more about Lourdes at some other point. I'm actually supposed to lead a group to, to Lourdes in October, and I've been there once and love it. So looking forward to going back. Uh, so. Yeah, 20 plus times. I'd love it and I never get sick of it. All right. We'll come back to your work with the Order of Malta a little bit later on. But I was wondering if you could tell us how and why you became involved with the NCBC. Sure. When I was um, in my master's in theology program, and I started. Where was at, that, by the way? Where'd you, where'd yeah, you do that I master's program? At, I started at St. John's Seminary, right in the Boston uh, campus of the Archdiocese. And then I transferred to Boston College. Um, very different environments. Um, I think BC helped me a great deal in learning to defend my faith in a very um, a calm, calm and uh, uh, respectful nature. So, um, because there's just a lot of diverse diversity there compared to many like-minded that I was with at St. John's, but it was both, both places were great. Um, and I focused on bioethics, um, for my master's in theology and I loved it. And so I actually remember meeting Dr. John Haas many years ago when I was at St. John's. And so um, it was always something that I, I aspired to, uh, combining my 
my gift with the sciences in nursing and medicine, and then um, having a master's in theology. So it was a natural fit for me to really um, go with the NCBC. So did the NCBC kind of help you in your studies or was it afterwards or just I'm trying to think of what was that connection like? It was, um, it was afterwards, but you know, with, um, our Catholic community, when we are out there and we're talking with people and inter interacting with people, um, you know, Dr. John Haas is a well-known name. I ran into him several times and, uh, always, you know, and, and Marie Hilliard and a few other people that would speak, mm-hmm. I would follow your, um, you know, your, your programs. And, uh, so it wasn't that I went to, um, further any education at the time, but I, uh, I really wanted to get involved because I see the ethics committees that are in, involved in the hospitals, a lot, a lot more bioethical, uh, decisions are being made. And, uh, and I, I felt that it was important to be part of NCBC in one way, shape, or form. And becoming a board member, I think what that does is just allow you to help steer the ship, if you will, in the current issues that they are. And, and there's always such dynamic and great um, discussions. So um, that's, yeah, it's been, it was always, it was always a goal and I'm, I'm glad I'm there. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your uh, your your membership on the NCBC Board of Directors. What do you do? What do you What are your responsibilities? And in, in addition to helping to steer the ship, but what what else does a board of directors member do? Well, you know, like any boards, and and I sit on other boards. I mean, there's a certain expectation. You know, a certain amount of meetings per year, a certain amount of discussion, fiduciary um, responsibilities. Um, there's certain expectations of a board. And that is to also bring the message of the organization out and really to the external world. world. And that's really what I do. I mean, I've called it the hidden jewel for so long that I love talking about the NCBC. And I do. I mean, the 24-7 you know, hotline and, and the um, great uh, certification program that you guys uh, run, I just think that's phenomenal. And I think it's also something that more people need to know about. So I take it very seriously that this is my, you know, one of my number one uh, charities that I want to not only be proud of to sit on the board, but also to do something and be able to talk about it and, and inform people and educate people. As you were answering, I was thinking, I'm like, wait a minute, you're, you're one of our board members. So I guess maybe you're my boss. No, 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 no. I'm not your boss. <laughs> I don't want to be your boss. Oh, no. No, no, no. I, uh, I had great respect and admiration for you and all the others, Joe, but I'm not your boss. <laughs> oh, I have a little, have to have a little fun in these in these interviews. Absolutely. No, I love you having as a, as a board member too. So, so Deb, you said earlier that you were a critical care nurse. Mm-hmm. So, as a nurse, I'm just wondering how has the COVID nineteen pandemic affected you, and how how has it challenged you? Well, you know, like everyone else, we've all been affected in one way, shape, or form. So it's it's been challenging that way. Um, but really, for me personally, I. Um, since I'm residing in New York City and that was hit so hard, I really wanted to go and get back into the unit, get back into an ICU. 
Um, even the governor was, I think, calling all nurses out of retirement and out of who had stopped working and to plead them to come back into the, the trenches, if you will. And I signed up for a per diem uh, list to be called. Um, my husband was very nervous about that. And I think he he pleaded with me enough because I, I hit that golden age of 60 and said, you know, you're really putting yourself and others at risk. And that's not what I was ma- wanting to do. What I wanted to do was the natural instinct of going to help people. And that is you know, always who I've been and who I am. And so I was very frustrated not being able to be right in the front line of the ICU to help my fellow nurse friends and colleagues. So my husband did make sure that he said, you know, you'll get involved some way and I know you will and I'll support that, but please not at the very beginning when we don't know much about this, this uh, terrible virus. And, and uh, so I respected my husband and uh, listened to him and uh, I think he was surprised, but I, uh, you know, I did wait (laughs) I did wait and I actually did get, was able to get involved later. And that involvement was nothing. I don't even want to compare it to what my nurse colleagues were going through in the ICU, but I was able to help uh, start up a testing site in Martha's Vineyard throughout the summer and and months because we retreated there after New York. We left New York and went down there and worked remotely, but they were asked to please set up a a test site. So we did um, at the high school and Martha's Vineyard High School. And we started and put up three tents and had my nurse hat on and tested. Well, I think it's, it's well over the 30,000 mark. And um, yeah, it was, it was, that was a great thing, at least a very fulfilling and rewarding thing for me to do in during the summer, just because I felt I needed to, to be part of it in some way. Very good. As a nurse, I'm wondering if people are coming up to you and asking questions about (laughs) COVID-19 and it could be like anything, but are they doing that? And if so, what are, what concerns are they raising? Sure. Great question. Because yes, that always, I mean, it's, I don't think that is ever put on hold. It seems like it's 24 seven always. And uh, the types of questions are just you know, what do you think about this virus? You know, um, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Of course, everyone, no one has that crystal ball. But you know, the uh, long-term effects of COVID, you know, what about the people that got in now that they're better? Uh, We know what happened, the poor souls that that died from it. Uh, God rest their souls. You know, so it, it ranged. And also a common question is, gosh, you know, you see some people get it. And they have no effect, practically. They might catch a little cold and be better. And then there's others that end up on the ventilators. So we talk a lot about the evolution of what we learned in those beginning months from the virus. How many people were put on ventilators? Um, Was it necessary? Was it not? Um, Things like that. But now we're looking at it, you know, as time goes on, what are those long-term effects? The vaccine. You know, am I getting it? Well, no, I'm not at risk and no, I'm not over that age. And uh, so I'd rather have it go to the first line 
frontline people first and those that are in that age group that are at most risk. But there are ethics of it. I mean, certainly the, um, the uh, abortion cells that have been used in some of them and we're, you know, all of us, all of us Catholic friends are watching very closely which ones are tainted, which ones are not, which ones were used in the lab, which ones were used directly, and um, and how safe that it appears, the efficacy. Um, certainly the ones that we know, J&J, has a less eth- efficacy, and it also uses aborted um, fetal cells. So we certainly don't want, we as a Catholic, we want to steer our friends away from that. The Moderna and the Pfizer certainly seem to be efficacious, but they both also have not used the fetal cells directly. And so, you know, that safety and effectiveness of the vaccine is always front and center. And I'm not anti-vaccine, but it's, um, you know, I do have my radar up on safety and and the long-term effects of that. And I've seen similar reactions. Some people have no reactions to the vaccine and some people get very sick. And then there's many, many um, nurses that are out there that are they're being staggered when they're getting it because there's so many people out sick afterwards. So it's really hard. Uh, you know, you don't want someone to get this virus, but at the same time, you don't want the, them to get sick from the vaccine. So, you know, it's, it's, it seems like a double-edged sword, and I think time will tell, but we are um, going in the pathway of trying to vaccinate you know, everybody. Um, I don't believe that anyone should be mandated. And of course, that's the ethical issue too. When some of my friends have been threatened their jobs and they, they need their healthcare insurance, they need for their families, they need to, they need their jobs. No one should be forced to take a vaccine, especially since it's still exper- considered experimental. And that is a, um, a big issue with me. And uh, I support a lot of my friends who just don't feel comfortable and they don't want to get it yet. And they may get it sometime soon in the future, but they don't want to get it yet. And I think we all have that right of choice and uh, shouldn't be forced. So those are the kind of um, conversations yeah. having. It's really interesting because all of the things you mentioned are issues that we're getting in our consult line as well, too. So mm-hmm. certainly the the question about the abortion drive cell lines uh, and we're we're recording this on March 4th and the the Johnson and Johnson vaccine has just been approved for mm-hmm. emergency use and and that one you know and, and all those issues there but you're also right uh, there's there beyond the use of the abortion drive cell lines there's the questions of informed consent there are mm-hmm. questions of safety and efficacy and there's and there's good information and bad information out about you know safety and efficacy so we got to wade through that but the mm-hmm. mandates as well too that that's a big issue and and if you know for your friend or for anybody else who may be dealing with the issue of mandates i know that the the christ medicus foundation um is dealing with this they have um mm-hmm. uh, one of their lawyers this is this is one of the issues that they deal with so if anybody needs some information f- please feel free to contact us and we'll we'll put you in touch with them but uh but yeah you're ticking off all the issues that <laughs> uh, that we're dealing with as well too well, Joe, I'm on that task force and advisory uh, for Christ Medicus, and what a great organization that is. I'll put in a plug happily. And um, yeah, this is uh, all the issues that we've been talking about. And um, 
Yes, and and I can say I listened to the various news outlets and nothing in mainstream when they were announcing J&J, they didn't even touch on the issue of the aborted derived cells. And also, then I changed channels to EWTN and I was ha- uh, happy to see our president, Joe Meany, last night on EWTN was talking about the exact same thing. So I, I know it's okay. uh, front yep. and center. And we all have to, you know, we all have to be um, as knowledgeable and as forthright as we can and respectful and um, but also respectful of those loving and respectful of those that choose that what is not on what mainstream is pushing. Yeah, it's going to be an ongoing issue for a while, I think. So anyway, Deb, tell us a bit about the Order of Malta. What is it? What does it seek to accomplish? Sure. I love the Order of Malta, and I've been proud to be a member for, I think it's 22 years now. It is a a lay Catholic organization that is uh, 900-plus years old, and it really has three charisms to serve the sick, serve the poor, and defend the faith. Some people say give witness to the faith, but I, I think it's one and the same. And it really was something that I embodied and embraced even before I was a member. And that's why it's easy to become a member if, if it's who you are. You know, when I first joined, I, I, before I joined, I, I mentioned I went to Lourdes first. And I was warned that, oh, wait till you see the getup you have to wear. Well, you know, the red cape, the black and red cape, and the, and the white veil, and the, you know, the uniform. Well... I just felt like I was right back in Catholic schools, you know, and, and it was all <laughs> in Lourdes, all the different um, orders of Malta uh, that are around the world, you know, the, the Polish and this, and the Spaniards and the French and the, and, and it's wonderful. And they, their uniforms are all the same, but it's slightly different. I have to say the Spanish and the Italians always have a different fashion flair to them, but uh, you know, it's it's wonderful to see, and you're all praying together. Um, to you know, I think it's hard, um, oftentimes in today's world, in the secular world, to be a practicing faithful Catholic. But you you join an order like this, and you just feel like you're you're with a lot of your Catholic family and friends. It becomes one big family. I, I've seen such goodness come from people, and it's really um, hands-on work in action. Uh, the gospel becomes alive, and that's what it, we're called to do in this order. Tell us about your work with the Order of Malta, and okay. uh, you know, how do you represent the organization? What what specifically do you do with it? Okay, well, first I'm a member, and then I'm also a board of counselor member. I'll just jump jump ahead and just say that I'm uh, a member of the Board of Counselors on my second term. First term was six years, um, two, two terms of three. And then you have to wait three years. And now I was just selected to go back on it. And what we do is, like any other board, like uh, meetings throughout the year and then fiduciary responsibilities and decide on what's your focus and steering the ship again, right? But you know what I love is the being on these boards, they complement each other. You know, they work together, NCBC and the Order of Malta and what we do. 
So we're all in it together. You know, I know there's some people that right now are trying to, Lee has gone out to administer vaccines around. They need help. Um, others are helping the people that are really have empty refrigerators and have nothing, no food and nothing um, to go out and, and purchase it. So they're delivering food. Um, we're we're put, putting the corporal and spiritual works of mercy in action all the time. And and depending on the situation in, in the world and society. Malteser International, I was on that board for a while, and that's the disaster um, assistance arm of the Order of Malta worldwide. Um, it's interesting. There's three associations in the United States that make up all about 4,000 plus members. And the uh, uh, headquarters is the American uh, Association in New York, the other one is the Federal Association located in Washington. And then the other one is Western Association in California. And I'm happy to say that we're really starting to work together um, on many different fronts. For instance, our priorities right now that Dr. Peter Kelly has um, put together in his presidency is pro-life work, number one. Number two is palliative care. And number three is human trafficking. And putting that as um, front and center to really uh, work and see the dignity and sacredness of every human being. And so, and that crosses all lines of each of those. The fourth one that has just been added is really promoting and advocating and maybe helping expand Catholic health care and, uh, and keeping their identity mm-hmm. Catholic. So I love this because. My background was, you know, as I mentioned, I was a respect life coordinator in, in Archdiocese of Boston for eight years, as, and, and I love pro-life work and really making a presence at the March for Life, and we did that, start doing that as an order a few years ago. And then palliative care, I mean, oh my gosh, we have such, I know you and, and your colleagues all work to teach about palliative care. And I've had the great pleasure of meeting, you know, even doctor like Dr. Coletti, Donna Coletti, as the expert of palliative care, and she's a member of the order. And so um, there's efforts there doing, um, helping people know um, what palliative care is and what to expect from it and how it differs from that death with dignity, as they call it, you know, um, camouflaging euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. So that is wonderful. And then the human trafficking, I just love, you know, as as much as it's depressing and a down topic, and I do feel it's one of the worst evils of today's society, I feel rewarded in the sense that I can go into healthcare um, and to, you know places of hospitals, institutions, entities, and really teach them what human trafficking is and help create a paradigm shift. And what I mean by that, Joe, is when I was working in the emergency room or ICU, and somebody came in and they were dressed like a prostitute. And this, I'm going to go back to the '80s. We would all look at each other, roll our eyes judgmentally, and go. Oh, you know, look at how she's dressed, et cetera. And instead of now I'm trying to get them, the paradigm shift is to look at that person and say, someone could be, and probably is 
forcing her to dress like that and forcing and why is she here? Um, and little boys and, and young men coming in seeking drugs. We again, we have to start thinking who's forcing them to take those drugs. They're not just drug seekers like we used to think. So um, we're doing a lot of education in the hospitals, and it's been so rewarding. And I continue that right now. I've started a, a new global strategic operatives, GSO. And what we do, we're uh, dedicated to the eradication of human trafficking, but we have a lot of work to do. We'll come back and talk about some of those human trafficking uh, issues in more detail in a bit. But I, I want to kind of go back a little bit and just ask you, um, Order of Malta mm-hmm. with the United Nations. I, yes. Have you had uh, – you've had some experience with representing the Order of Malta at the United Nations. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So this is a little bit confusing because some because some people will say, well, is the UN uh, is that the country Malta or is that the <laughs> order of Malta? And you have no idea how many times I get that question. Yes. So um, we have a little bit of marketing to do, and uh, we're we're very busy doing it during when the UN is open. Um, unfortunately, that's been hit quite hard with COVID restrictions as well, but. Um, I am a delegate at the Order of Malta mission to the United Nations, and and I'm very honored and, be, and proud to be that um, in that role. I I started at the UN. Uh, I told you I got my master's in theology, and my last class in my theology program, uh, a professor asked me, "So Deb, you're you're an RN with an MBA, and now you have a master's in theology. What are you going to do with it?" And I said, well, I really um, don't know. But I do know that I have a passion and love for healthcare. Um, I've learned some business skills along the way. And at this stage of my life, my faith is so important that it has to be part of anything I do. And so he said, I hear you're moving to New York. I said, yes, I am. He said, would you consider working at the UN in the area of human trafficking? And I just looked at him and I said, wow. I said, I think that would cover all three of my criteria. He said, I think it would. And that was nine years ago. And uh, this this, um, priest friend, Father Tom Brennan, took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew. And I'm forever grateful. But then I got a chance three years later to become a delegate. A delegate position opened up um, at the mission. And um, my name was put forward because of the work I was doing anyway. And, um, and they asked me if I would consider it. And I said, you know, really on one condition, can I continue doing work in my human trafficking um, arena? And they said, yes, of course. And in fact, they assigned me to the third committee, which is all human rights and human, and human trafficking comes under that. I've had a great run at meeting people, um, that delegate position, as Father Tom Brennan said to me, you go for it because that will open doors and you'll get into meetings that you otherwise wouldn't be able to as an NGO that I where I had originally started. And he was absolutely right. And um, that way, now I'm able to meet with various people that are doing human trafficking, anti-human trafficking work around the globe. And and really trying to learn from the best and, and best practices and, and and what the conditions are in different countries. And so I can say, for instance, the Philippines, 
the Catholic world in, in the Philippines has done a remarkable job in um, fighting human trafficking. And of course, the UN puts certain tier levels on that, uh, on those countries. And they're really at the top of their game, along with the US, with changing laws and, and trying to do the best they can to prosecute. Um, but this has been a, a great ride for me doing some human traffic, anti-human trafficking. I keep saying human trafficking. I'm not doing human trafficking. I'm doing anti-human trafficking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so Deb, is your work, I, I just to, for, to clarify for our listeners, is the work you're doing with human trafficking, is that UN work? Is that Order of Malta work? Is it together work? How, how does that, Okay. how does that, uh, give, us sure. a, give us a, give us a little well, description of that. It's turned into a little bit of both. So it first was just UN, and then I traveled into the delegate position, and it became UN and Order of Malta. Okay. And so when I created um, Global Strategic Operatives, it was really with, jointly with a, a gentleman I met through the Holy See Mission, and Kevin Highland, and he's the former anti-slavery commissioner of, under Theresa May, and he's over in the UK and Ireland. And really, he's going around the globe and talking with the G20 countries and the OSCE, but he helped me greatly. And so he told me to focus on policy and because of my background, to because of 88% of uh, there's a study done that shows 88% of all survivors have stated that they went and sought medical care while being trafficked. So we know that traffickers and, and, and victims are showing up on the doorsteps of the emergency rooms. And so that's why I want to do that and really focus on healthcare. But that impact is real all under the umbrella of the Order of Malta, because I am also going according to te- Catholic teaching. And this is an important point I'd like to make, though. A lot of people that are training um, not just training, but in this world, don't think twice about you know bringing a woman that might have been tra- might have been trafficked and who is pregnant to the abortion clinic. And what I have learned is there are so many mu- women that suffer the pain of not just one but multiple forced abortions. The worst I saw was a woman who was in the life for ten years and had seventeen forced abortions. Um, I would not take part or even contribute to the 18th and make more pain delivered to her. We, we partner with life perspectives that honor the, the Catholic teachings. Um, we don't, I, I partner with a organization, Sail Away and Sail of Freedom, who do not promote abortions, only promote being completely uh, celibate and not active, sexually active in their healing phase because that will hinder it. And also, I won't be um, privy to anybody that's uh, promoting contraception. So that puts a little limitation on us. But I have great support from some people like Chris Smith, our representative down in uh, from New Jersey in, in Congress. I don't know how we survived New Jersey, yep. years. But he's an amazing man, and uh, I'm just like, if he can do it, I can do it. So we, we, you join hands and forces with the people that you meet along the way that will respect your values and know and know what you're all about. 
Um, there's no hidden agendas. When Sometimes when I go on people's websites and I see human rights and, and reproductive health and reproductive rights that they're for, I know what that's all about from the UN. And that's, um, right. you know, buzzwords right. for exactly. abortion and contraception. So I want, it is clear that even though it says global strategic operatives, and it may look like the Homeland Security uh, website because we wanted to make it look very professional. <laughs> and I love my Homeland Security buddies. They do great work. Um, but I want it also to be clear that the umbrella is under the order of Malta. And I put our, I've got permission from our ambassador. In fact, he's encouraged me to use our, our logo on every piece of um, website or, you know, social media material or anything. Because it's um, it is part of the That's Order awesome. of Malta. Well, I mean, Pope Francis is pushing us all to you know for anti-human trafficking work, and so the Order of Malta now is is now taking part in it, and we hope that it will it'll all join hands, all from Europe to all the other areas to the tri associations in America, will all be work working towards the same goal and working together. Yeah, that's great work. I, I want this, and I support you, and 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 you know, ask God's blessing on your work. It's fantastic work you're doing. I was wondering, Deb, can you give us a picture of what a human trafficking victim is, and as well, maybe even first, how prevalent is human trafficking in the U.S.? And then, what is what is a, a typical, if there is a typical uh, victim? That's a great question, Joe. First of all, for some basic um, background information. There's three types of human trafficking. We, we put them in, in clumps of sex trafficking, labor trafficking, and organ trafficking, also known as organ harvesting. Um, there's 40 million plus people worldwide being trafficked. And you might hear 29 million often uh, used, but we include forced marriages. So uh, that adds it up to 40 million. Um, 71% are actually, um, sex trafficked women and, but inversely, 68% of men are the majority of labor traffic trafficking and the organ trafficking is just sadly increasing like crazy. And, um, in China, would you say, India, Deb, when you say organ trafficking, are you talking are you talking organs of like paired organs or are you talking like vital organs that are taken away from people? Both, both. The most common organ is that is traded or trafficked is the kidney because you can live with one kidney. And, and of course it, it strikes at the poverty level of people that um, suffer in that, in that world. And they think that they can, get 150,000 US dollars for a kidney. Well, number one, they never see that money. And number two, they take that kidney and then they, they've already been exploited and they don't get the money. And so it's, it's um, horrific. They, they are swindled by the traffickers as well. And so it's, yeah. trafficking is wow. a big business. According to the ILO, the International Labor Organization, $150 billion in illicit profits. And it is a major organized crime business. And most people at the top don't know the people at the bottom and in the, and in the middle. And so, um, and why it's that profitable and lucrative 
is because, you know, to sell a gun or drugs, you sell it once and then you need to replenish your supply. You, you obtain a person and you can use them over and over and over until they're not usable anymore. So um, it's, a, it's quite sad and sick. And unfortunately, young boys are now the new commodity and especially in different countries that they're preferred. Um, so there's a lot of training we do to the healthcare providers. In fact, the, the healthcare providers presentation that I have is in three sections, but two out of three are very graphic and we do, we would not show to regular, um, lay folks that are not healthcare, but it, it's so sad, but it's something that, um, yeah, no one ever gets used to any of the descriptions that we have to teach. And it's, um, yeah. Yeah. So, but, um, anyway, how, what does a typical trafficking victim look like? Joe, there's no typical. And I say that because we all have that from the movies and what the typical pimp looks like, uh, you know, and it's not the pimp man, you know, black man with a hat. And, and that, those were the movies. Nowadays they can be um, people in their people's right in their own affluent uh, neighborhoods and could be someone next door that has a nanny come from a different uh, country and they confiscate the passport and won't allow her out. And, and oftentimes it's neighbors that will notice that young girl hasn't been to school. What, what's going on? And they'll start the um, really making the phone calls. Um, for sex trafficking, it's people that, you know, you would be shocked. Um, and other women that are uh, now, they used to be the bottom girl and now they're moving up so they don't take as many beatings. So they will they will be the trafficker um, perpetrator for um, the other women. Not, there's not any rule book that you can really look at and say, oh, that's it. But, you know, um, as long as the demand is there, it's going to continue. And unfortunately, with COVID, I might add, yeah. there's been a rise in child sex trafficking. No surprise to the people in our industry, but it's um, because all the kids are at home on their smartphones and apps. And um, and even though their parents could be right across from them on a, on a sofa, um, they're in a different stress level of, you know, providing for their family, losing their jobs, maybe getting sick with COVID, and the kids are being held home and, you know, sometimes going to school, sometimes not. And uh, the traffickers basically took their business from the streets to the social media platforms. And there's a huge uh, spike. Craziness. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. So not talking about your specific program yet, we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering in your experience, what programs have you found to be most successful in combating human trafficking? Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. what have you learned from them and, and, and then implemented into your own work? Okay. Some of the best programs I saw along the way, I've seen survivor led programs, which we emulated and copied. And because the survivors' stories 
um, and this is not to exploit any survivors, but those that have healed long enough to be able to share their story is so impactful, so powerful, and they and it lets you know why you do the work and, and keep trying to shovel against the tide as it feels like most of the time. And, but they keep you um, engaged in why you do what you do. Other programs, I want, I'll shout out for um, NICMIC, the National Center for um, Missing and Exploited Children. They put out this terrific um, toolkit for parents to educate the parents, make them more aware and make, and really have the conversation with their kids and, you know, keeping an eye out of what sites they're on and who they're talking to. So those come to mind as the two, really educating the parents, the survivors, and then I would say prevention, Uh, prevention, and that's going into the schools and teaching the kids you don't want to take away the kids' innocence, but boy, you want to make sure that they they remember those words that mom and dad used to say, don't ever get into a stranger's car and run and yell and make it, you know, so those are the kids that will survive trying to, you know, um, being abducted. So, but it's, um, I mean, some of the, the, the various people, the technology, you know, the, the, There's certain police forces around the country and around the world that have specific human trafficking divisions, and they work with technology and and experts because the um, technology experts have even shared, I learned, anything with a camera, what you and I are doing right now, anything with a camera has the capability of being hacked, and if they're watching anyone and, and, and sadly, people are out oftentimes even to get young babies so that they can bring them up in this world, as sick as that sounds. So I, not to panic-stricken uh, new parents, but at the same time, these are just the ways, the sick ways of the world in which the devil works. And you just, you just want to explain to people to be aware. So the, those were, um, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're successful, I don't know, the successful ones are really, I would say, the most law enforcement, the, the those Homeland Security folks are working their tail off. They, um, and also the um, police forces that are, that have these special dedicated human trafficking divisions are um, really what we need. Yeah. Boy, I could see that. <laughs> It's chilling the things you're talking about. I I couldn't imagine doing that work. It's just well. Tell us about your program then. So what what are you specifically with uh, with the Order of Malta? What are you? What's your program uh, to combat human trafficking? And is this understood as a a national program, international program? Mm -hmm. How how is how does this all work? Okay, because it's under the UN, it is international, and that's easy. But um, (laughs) uh, as far as my particular program, and it's called Global Strategic Operatives, and the website is just that, all one word, dot org. And people can learn about it. But it's what I'm happy to say is I I started off, you know, in the awareness building, because that's where the need was. And then came more education. And then I shared with you going to the healthcare, But with Kevin Highland and I really 
brainstorming and talking about the need out there, he would give me examples of when he'd say, you know, you need to be policy driven. And, and Debs, what I do is I tell the G20 countries that the people in this room that have the power to stop labor trafficking tomorrow, if they just put an embargo on cotton. Yes, it will hurt you economically, but in the long run, you'll stop it and stop it at the supply chains, etc. So taking that example and moving it towards the healthcare, I realized that I was going up, the, you know, doing the educational track and going out and going out with my buddies from Homeland Security and law enforcement and going to communities and going to sports places and, and government buildings and, and teaching. But, and then I started doing medical grand rounds and you and I have talked about medical grand rounds for, you know, for NCBC and, and I, but you know, what was the policy, what, um, approach and that, what was missing, I would just go and I would give the training to 200, 250 people, which is great. And, but then I'd call back about two, three months later to say, hey, how's it going with that new human trafficking task force that you guys were going to set up? And they'd say, oh, Debbie, you know, we loved your presentation. It was great. It informed us. We learned a lot. But, you know, other, other things took priority. So what I learned is go right to a CEO and see if there's a connection with mission-driven and seeing if this can line up with their mission, which most do. And so... I met with several um, CEOs and almost unanimously, they were like, this is a no brainer. Of course we want this. But when you have them in their role, telling everyone underneath that this is going to be part of the mission and this is important, then it gets done. So I first start with CEO approval. I then next after they, um, and I get them to agree that, two things that they will proliferate the training doing train the trainers and get it all throughout their whole system. And that's why I went after the big integrated delivery network systems. Like, you know, those that have 70,000 employees like advocate Aurora Northwell, you know, and 40 hospitals um, in their system. It's, it's more bang for your buck, if you will. The second thing I asked for, for yeah. from the CEO is to have them, put this, embed this into new higher orientation, because then everyone coming in, whether it's wash, hand washing, fire safety, now human trafficking 101, basic who, what, where, why, and how. So that way the parking attendant will know if they see something and the policy, we help design and create a policy for each hospital. So what we've done is go into half dozen or so um, U.S. large hospitals and half dozen international, help get the CEO approval or, or the equivalent of, help them design a policy, and then we go in and do the training afterwards, and then they continue it, and we help support them. Um, in the end, what the goal is, and it's under, as I mentioned, under the UN banner of the Order of Malta Mission to the UN. Mm-hmm. We will compare and collect all the policies that we've helped create and compare them, even if there's different cultures of the common denominators. 
will synthesize it, create a new universal one, and submit it to the World Health Organization for consideration to, um, for worldwide distribution. Because currently, there is no policy for human trafficking for healthcare providers that exists today. So wh- that's what our purpose and goal is for the GSO. Um, yeah. After the, we're halfway done. Well, we're more than halfway. We've finished the U.S. side. We just did India, and I have five more in the pipeline internationally. And then we'll just go and be global strategic operatives and go anywhere that people um, have. Like, for instance, we do have John Hopkins that put in a request to us, and we're going to be training them March 24th and April 7th. So um, we'll continue to do domestic, but we're also, once we, we have to finish the international. You mentioned uh, mission uh, a little while ago, how a program like this fits into a hospital's mission. And I'm wondering, um, you, you mentioned some of the names really quickly. I didn't pick up, were there any Catholic healthcare systems that were involved with that? And have how have been, if there are, how have been the response? Sure. Well, actually, happily, I did um, team up with Dignity Health at the very beginning because they, they were the gurus and the pioneers of the human trafficking trainings. Um, initially, um, they've since now, then I'll, I'll mention that they helped me with the, you know, policy creation and all that. Um, they have some good things on their website. Um, but when they merged and became common spirit, I've had to, uh, realize that they have to, they have a lot more to train. And, um, so, um, I've been able to, revise and update all of our material and dignity was very um, gracious and and generous in letting us keep whatever we wanted out of their, um, you know, bag of tools. And, um, but what I did was also take others, you know, um, people wanting, wanting me to incorporate their work. So what we do is we, we put the best of the best together. So that, but this, that was the only Catholic I'm trying to think, of, you know, we had Advocate Aurora, uh, RWJ Barnabas. These are all on, on my website, but Baptist Health. We had Baptist Health um, down in Florida and Hackensack and um, Baylor was in the mix. They had to get canceled because of COVID in Northwell. So five were completed in four months and then Baylor was canceled because of COVID. But I will tell you that um, I did... Malta, the Order of Malta, American Association, wanted me to do a training. And of course, COVID hit. So they asked me to do it virtually. And I conducted that training. And that has spread through the other to the other associations in the Western and the federal. And now they're, they really are excited about taking on human trafficking. And so one of the things that I asked them as what can members do? Well, you're not, you know, you'll cause more harm than good if you just jump in there without knowing about trauma-informed care and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, what you can do is all the Order of Malta members know about um, know clergy and know cardinals and, and have relationships with bishops. And they may know of a building that used to be in a rectory or a sadly a former convent. And so instead of selling that off, we're actually – providing them a model of um, introducing revenue generating and non-revenue generating ministries. So 
turn one building into a revenue generating ministry, such as let's say senior housing, you get usually eleven close to eleven thousand dollars a month per patient, and then you take off from that profit and you put it towards a safe home that's no revenue because you know the church is you know a little bit shy on the non revenue generating. But if you're, and this is a great model. This is a great model. And so here we have the Catholic Church with so much, you know, so many assets and so rich in, in a lot of properties and real estate that we could just take one per state and that would add 52 new safe homes. And I'm telling you, if you ask the Homeland Security what is needed now, it, what could we do to help? Their answer is beds, beds, and more beds. So we're in a very, the Catholic Church is in a very unique spot to be really proactive in helping out the human trafficking, you know, quagmire that we're in of, of safe, not enough. So I'm in the hospitals training the, the healthcare providers to identify and take appropriate action. So the more they identify, the more the numbers go up and the more beds that are needed. So if, if they don't have a place to place them, like the FBI and the Homeland Security don't have a place to place them, well, they often will just return into the life. So it's, it's, it's a terrible cycle. But And also the CMA, the Catholic Medical Association, has really embraced and had me speak to their board and now um, have invited me as a guest speaker, the GSO, uh, as a guest speaker to um, their conference in Orlando um, annual conference, and that's in October. Deb, have you seen any positive results from this work, either qualitative or quantitative? I, I, I know this wasn't a question that I was planning to ask you, but I'm just wondering, have you seen or what have you seen in terms of results? Okay, two things that come to mind. One of the survivors that they are so resilient and they're so strong and they're so amazing and the ones that have gone through healing enough to be able to speak and and give their witness, it's amazing what they've done with their lives. And from such horror, I can't even imagine the horror that they've gone through. And yet, they God, God has blessed them in ways. Most of the time, they if they didn't have faith while they were in the life, they sure have faith now. And they're and they're using it to the best of their their gifts. The other thing is, you know, the law enforcement has really taken this on and very seriously. And the stings that are happening now seem to be, well, they're depressing, but they're also encouraging. And so you might have heard just in the last few months, California, 33 kids, age 13 to 17, uh, saved. And then in Texas, there was another big one. And, and we learned from them. We learn, we learn about the horrors, you know. Um, you know, they have a quota. And if they don't match, meet their quota, they get beaten. And then they, they are supposed to make money, so they're beaten in places that aren't noticeable, like their rib cages and their, you know, torso. So this is awful. And, and I just, I mentioned I did India. Uh, training in India, virtually, of course. But um, we learned from the doctors there that the young children 
are now being fed hormones so that they can develop faster so that they can get out there and make more money uh, faster. And it's, you know, you can't even imagine no one in there, you know, we can't even imagine this even being a thought in someone's head, but um, that's how sick it is. So, you know, people say, well, what's going to, it's going to eliminate it. Well, as long as there's demand and, and what pushes up the demand, it's the pornography and it's the, you know, people laughing at it, you know, boys will be boys or, girl, you know, they, they think this is funny or a rite of passage in life. And it's not, it's adding and contributing to all this horror that people are being put through. So, um, I got off a phone call this morning internationally and really it's tough in the Southeast Asia, you know, continents and, and countries there because it's, uh, the culture is such that they believe in karma and you've done something and you deserve that. And, and, uh, they don't put much value on a lot of lives depending on their status. So, um, you know, going in there doing a training may or not be effective if you can't get to the basic of respect and dignity for all and sanctity of all human life. Right. So I think we have no shortage of work, Joe. Yep. I was, I was just going to say that it seems like there's a lot of work left to do. Deb, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? My final words of wisdom will be that NCBC, I don't want it to be a hidden jewel anymore. I want it to be an open <laughs> jewel. I want people to know about it, stay updated through the website, talk and share with it about to others, especially, you know, that, that 24-7 hotline when people need it in the hospital, it's, it's a godsend and people need to know more about it and, they, and to learn more about your faith, the, the programs that they teach. I mean, the NCBC is really a golden nugget that we're, that a lot of people just don't know about and don't take advantage of. So, and it's available to everyone, even though the word Catholic is in there, it's available to everyone, uh, who, no matter what, uh, religion or creed. So I just, I just encourage everyone to get to know it better. Well, thanks for the plug. (laughs) Sure. So Deb O'Hara-Ruskowski, thank you for joining us today on Bioethics On Air. Joe, thank you. I really appreciate it. Always good seeing you. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service, You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.